ਬਾਰੇ ਮੇਖ ਕਰਨਾ ਚਲੋ Israel, and now he's the king of the entire Middle East. 
should end here. If the Bible is written the way it's supposed to be written, it's supposed to have a good ending. It's supposed to end when this, this is the American dream. <laughs> he comes from nowhere. He gains power. He's the king of the entire Middle East. The end. But for some reason, the Bible refuses to be a Hollywood movie. For some reason, the Bible always ruins the good ending. I think we should stop the lesson here. <laughs> I'll go back to Israel. I think this was a good, this is a good story to tell. But the Bible, for some reason, refuses to offer us good endings. Because after he rises, after he's in control of the entire Middle East, then something happens. Then it starts to go wrong. And what happens is that his, his kingdom is challenged, but not from the outside. There's no enemy in the outside that threatens David's kingdom. It's only from the inside. The first person to challenge his kingdom sovereignty was Absalom, his son. He rallies the crowd against him. He creates this great rebellion against his father. He, it almost works. David is almost overthrown by his own son. But David has a tough guy working for him. His name is Joab ben Suriah. And David is faced with the unbelievable dilemma. In order to destroy the rebellion, they have to kill the leader of the rebellion. But in this case, the leader of the rebellion is his son. What an impossible dilemma. What am I first, a king or a father? As a king, you're supposed to crush the rebellion by killing its leader. As a father, you can't kill your son. What am I first, a king or a father? David decides to be a father, not kill his son. But Joab ben Suriah, his secretary of defense, decides to make him king. He kills his son of Shalom, crushes the rebellion. King David, on the one hand, is very angry at Joab, and on the other hand, he's thankful to Joab. He's angry as a father, he's thankful as a king. But that's not over. Right after that rebellion's over, there's a new rebellion. This time by Sheba baby Ali. Then they have to go crush that rebellion. And by the time that's over, a big disease spreads out through Israel, kills 70 something thousand people. And then Samuel 2 ends. The end. So the story is a story of, of the rise of David. Then rebellion one, then rebellion two, then the disease, then it ends. If we draw the graph of Samuel two, it's like this. Okay, if you draw the graph, it's his, he goes, he goes down. My question is, what triggered the fall of David? Last summer, some of you weren't Hartman, and we spoke about this. For some reason, our rabbi, Les, my president, Amy, asked me to speak about this again. <laughs> <laughs> Not big fans of me. <laughs> Tell us why you fell again. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tell it again. Enigma I want to think about 
Why is it? That the tribe that brought David to power, Yudah, was the first tribe to undermine his authority, to challenge his power. This was his own tribe. This was his own people. Why is it that it's his tribe that brought him to power for the first ones to turn their backs to him? That's the question I'd like to present. That's the enigma I think the Bible presents in front of us. Now, power is interesting. Why is the people that get into power, they're the ones who take it away? We'd have thought, I'd like to think out loud, that the structure of Samuel 2 is very clear. The moment that things started to go wrong, now, having that question in mind of Yehuda, I want to move now to the text. The moment things start to go wrong, there's one chapter in the center of Samuel 2. It's Samuel 2, chapter 11. This is a chapter I'd like to read with you in detail. I think it's an amazing chapter. It's a chapter of David and Bathsheba. This chapter in front of you. Let's read this chapter and then see how the kingdom of David collapses from that moment. I'm reading in Hebrew, but it's for you. I, I, I highly recommend to break your teeth with me in Hebrew because the Hebrew here is extremely powerful. But feel free to follow me in the English translation. The English is still the holy language of Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> What word do we have here? Tshuva. Which in Hebrew means? Return. When does it happen that the ear returns to you? Yeah, the ear, now the ear returns. The ear's back. So it's like it's saying it's a Rosh Hashanah. I guess that's why we chose this chapter because it relates to our Shiul Yasser of Rosh Hashanah. That's why. David sends his troops under the leadership of Yoav to Rabat Amon. You know where Rabat Amon is. It's Amman. So our troops finally made it to Amman. <laughs> thousand years ago. Our troops are now attacking Amman. And while all this is happening, Vedavid Yosef Birushalayim. So while our troops are out there with Yoab attacking Amman, what is David doing? something, something happened to David. Because I remind you of a scene here, we're all acquainted with from Samuel 1. There was a scene in Enneka Elah, where anybody was behind, the only person to go in front of anyone else and to challenge Goliath was David. Something happened to David. His claim for fame is he's the one that's in front of his soldiers. Now, for the first time, he's sitting back. You know the Israeli ethos of Acharai? Acharai, come after me. Well, David invented a new ethos. Milfanai. V'david Yoshev v'Yerushalayim. Some people say that this was his sin. This was the beginning of his sin. It's interesting, I taught this chapter to Israeli officers after 2006, after Lebanon too. It's interesting, modern technology created, uh, made, created a new military reality for Israelis where it makes more sense for officers to sit behind the troops and watch through screens what's happening. It makes more sense. 
They have more control. But something in this fighting spirit was lost. It was a big dilemma. Where do you locate the commander? Behind, he has more control, but it's bad for motivation. Or in front, we have less controls going on, but he's with the troops. Interesting dilemma. I don't know the answer. I'm just saying it's, it's an interesting dilemma that, 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 that we have technology challenging the ethos of the Israeli army. David Yoshev Yerushalayim. By the way, Chazal say that the Bible doesn't like the word Yoshev. The Bible doesn't want us settling down. <laughs> the Bible said that the, the Talmud said, "Bekol makom shekatuv vayeshev miyat kofet satan vemekatrei." Every time that it says vayeshev, something bad happens. <laughs> it says vayeshev Yisrael veEretz begurei Aviv. That's in Genesis. What happens after it says vayeshev Yisrael veEretz begurei Aviv veEretz? What happens then? The Joseph events. Not good stuff. When brothers want to kill their brother. It says, Vayeshev Yisrael Vashitim. What happens then? Well, that's when uh, the uh, Israelites are tempted by the Moabite women. Not good stuff. It says, Vedavid Yosef Yerushalayim. Then the Bible says, when you're not in progress, you start falling. There is no being in a static position just doesn't exist. Vayi ve'et erev vayakom David me'al mishkamo. I want to listen to this verse. Vayi ve'et erev vayakom David me'al mishkamo. What does it say here? He wakes up from a nap. But when does he wake up from the nap? Le'et erev. That's nice. <laughs> That's nice. There's so much information and so many in, in, in so little words. Not only is he sitting in the back before it says the video Now it says he's not exactly sitting. What is he doing? You know, siesta. <laughs> Afternoon. Usually you wake up in the morning. David is one of those guys that wakes up in the evening. They're discussing here the decadence of David. Where you're supposed to, where you're, you're starting to be corrupted by your own success, your own power. And what do you do in your spare time? What do you do in your spare time?
that this beautiful woman that he's attracted to is the wife of the soldier that he sent out, his warrior. Doesn't seem to bother him. It's right after her monthly period, which probably means they thought it was safe. You know what they call that, sister? <laughs> what? There's two days. Well, they call this is that, that kind of protection is called the Chinese technique. Look at you, you have in China. Does it work? <laughs> Does it always work? Oh, I just feel like I didn't know you guys are in the middle of a big public debate about this issue. Vatasho ben beta. Verse 5 Vatahavaisha. Now they're in trouble. She's pregnant. Tells David, she's pregnant. Now that next verse, please listen to this in Hebrew and capture one word that for some reason is the dominant word of this verse but the entire chapter. Vaishlach David Eliyahu. Shlach Eli Eliyahu. Vaishlach Yoav Eliyahu. So obviously, there's a word that constantly repeats itself throughout the chapter. It's shlach. Martin Buber taught us to read the text this way. If you have a word that repeats itself again and again, that's the key word to the secret of the chapter. The key word, the dominated word of this chapter is shlach. Vayishlach. Vesev. Why is this the key word of this chapter? Why is it so important of this chapter to emphasize the Vayishlach, Vayishlach, Vayishlach? What is, I think, the Vayishlach where it does? It emphasizes how passive David is. He stopped doing things himself. It emphasizes the opening statement, V'david Yoshev Yerushalayim. So he works out the following cover up. Tells Uriah to send him, sorry, tells Yoav, his general, to send him Uriah, understanding that if that if Uriah will come back home, he'll probably go visit his wife. And after he visits his wife, naturally, a few months later, with they realize that she's pregnant. So what will people say? It was Uriah. That's a great cover-up. He'll be bored. They'll say, wow, you're so lucky. He looks kind of like the king. Nice compliment. <laughs> <laughs> no harm done. He was born a month early. It's very nice. It's a nice cover-up. Verse 7. Uriah, his warrior, comes to visit him. He comes back from Amman. He comes to his office. Now please follow me to Hebrew here, even if it's hard, because this, this verse is very powerful. David, David asks, Vishlom Yoav. How's Yoav? Mashlom Yoav. Shalom in Hebrew is also peace. Is, he, is Yoav peaceful? How are the people? How are those soldiers? And finally, the great oxymoron. Isn't that beautiful? Only Hebrew can, can create, actually only the Middle East can create such an oxymoron. <laughs> Is the war peaceful? Ma <laughs> shlom David says to Uriah, Go to your house. Take a shower. 
This is what's in the mind of the king, just to make sure that we'll be able to take a good shot. Get back from the war. Now, obviously, what is he trying to say to him without saying? His wife's looking good tonight. <laughs> He's saying, we all know what he really means, but he can't say it. He's almost saying. Uriah leaves the king and with him the entire entourage that the king is living with him. That's a little bit bizarre. There's a Monty Python like that, like the guy who walked. It's a little bit bizarre. But that's a with and Uriah slept that, that night right in front of the king's palace. Didn't go to take a shower. Didn't go to visit his wife. Cover up things. You see, this is what bothers the king. He's fighting a war, but what really troubles him is that Uriah didn't go to take a shower. They tell the king that this is really, this is exactly what you want the guy to take care of. You know, why didn't this warrior take a shower when he comes back? So he invites him again <laughs> to his office. Now, what's important for the king to tell Uriah? Very important. You come from far away. Why did he go to your house? I'm glad to hear that the king takes care of serious matters. <laughs> now listen to Uriah's monologue. Uriah answers the king. I'll tell you why I couldn't spend the night in my nice warm bed after a warm shower drinking a warm glass of coffee. I'll tell you why I couldn't. The ark and all the troops are sleeping in tents. Sukkot is like, um, it's like Sukkot, but it's real Sukkot. In tents, in the field, in tough conditions. All my buddies are there. This is very powerful. He's telling King David, and my master, Yoav, saying, really saying, my master is not the one sitting behind. My master is the one that's with us, Bashetach, with us, with the troops. Adoni Yoav, Yoav is my master. And we're all out there in the field. Knowing that all my buddies, my commanders, my soldiers, my buddies are out fighting a war. This, this is very interesting. Soldiers get this. It's very hard to have a good time when you know that your friends are in the field. The best soldiers have guilt. The best soldiers, when all your friends are in Lebanon and you come home for a weekend, it's hard. The best soldiers, not everyone. I wasn't that way. I was just, yeah. <laughs> but the best soldiers can't enjoy themselves when they know that their friends are out there. Those are the ones that feel like they're so connected to their mission and their friends and their commanders that they can't, they can't be their own, enjoy, they don't have needs of their own. There's something about the army experience that for the best, not for mediocre, not for, for the best, it's an ecstatic experience. You feel connected to something that's bigger than yourself, therefore you can't enjoy yourself in an egoistic way anymore. So he says that you think how uh, and I could just go to my house to eat and drink and then he says the unbelievable words now something just happened in this dialogue the king did say to him why don't you go and sleep with your wife 
But when he repeated the king, for some reason he said, and you think I could go and... Uh, it's almost like Uriah just exposed something to David, not for sure, maybe, and exposed something to all the readers of the story. Where did Jesus expose it? What? Maybe he knows. I don't know, maybe... I don't know, maybe he suspects. Maybe this whole thing is a bit weird to him. David realizes that the cover-up fails. The cover-up fails because Uriah is such a hero. The cover-up fails because he's not willing, when his soldiers are out in the field, to enjoy himself. Meaning, ultimately, what does Uriah refuse to do? What? He refuses to be David. He refuses to enjoy himself while people are out there in the front. He refuses to be David. And at its best, I think, the story between the dialogue between David and Uriah is a dialogue between David the king. And who's Uriah? Who's Uriah? Who's Uriah's David. Is the good old David. Is the nostalgic David. It's David seeing himself before he was corrupted by his own success. The cover-up fails because of the greatness of William. The cover-up fails because because he's selfless, because he's connected to his truth. The cover-up fails. And David moves to cover up 9 and 10. I'll start reading now. I want to just describe because we don't have a lot of time. Cover-up number two is David writes a letter to Yoab. And the letter to Yoab says, listen, take this boy and send him to the most dangerous battlefield. How does David know that this will work? How does that, now cover up one, cover up one was to try to make, create the illusion that Uriah is the father. Cover up two is what? To kill Uriah. How does he know the cover up two will work? Exactly. Because of all the reasons that cover up one failed, cover up two will work. He realizes, he sees how selfless he is. How great he is, how brave he is. He knows that this is the kind of guy, using Israeli metaphor, You know the metaphor, In Lebanon too, so we had a, you know, you know the story of Roy Klein? Roy Klein. Jewish history doesn't produce many of these kind of people. That he was the uh, Samgad, who was a deputy to the end of the battalion. They entered the house, in Lebanon too, and the Hezbollah threw a hand grenade into the house. There was nothing to do. Roy Klein jumped on the hand grenade, said, and he said, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elenu, Hashem Echad, save the whole battalion. It's a true story, real story. He's today, Roy Klein is a, is a, is a big, big myth in Israel. Saying David knew that this was the quality of. Sometimes we have these kind of people. We owe we are everything to these kinds of people. So he knows that he has the quality. We'll send him to the most dangerous battlefield. He'll, do, he'll be the one that, using an Israeli expression, they'll jump on the hand grenade because the life of his soldiers is more important than his own life. Cover up two works. Because of all the reasons that cover-up one fails, because he was so heroic, cover-up two works, because he was so heroic. But here's the thing. King David decided not only to kill him, but to kill him with um, literary cla- with class. Nice touch. He writes this letter to Yoav, send him to the most dangerous battlefield. And Yoav gets it. This guy needs to die. Yoav doesn't know why, but this guy needs to die. And who does he give the letter? Who does he send the letter with to Yoav? To Uriah. <laughs> he says, okay, go back to the battlefield. Please take this letter. Don't open it up. <laughs> Please give it to Yoav. Yoav reads the letter, meaning David made sure that Uriah will send to Yoav a letter of his own self Destruction. He doesn't. And he's killed. When the prophet Nathan comes to David 
And he blames him for murdering Uriah. This is how he blames him. He says that he killed Uriah using the following term. With the sword of the Ammonim. See, it's all reversed. He's a soldier. We're supposed to use our, so our swords against the enemies. What David did, he used the sword of the enemies against his own troop, his own soldier. He used Uriah's greatness against Uriah. I told you, it should have ended before. <laughs> this is David's sin. I think his sin begins with the Yoshev Bi It continues with the fact that he sleeps with the wife as if it's a warrior. But the worst sin is not the sin. The sin was the attempt to cover up the sin. That's where the sin is located. From this moment on, when it falls, now I'd like to, in very, 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 very broad terms, to follow the story, just to, before we try to read into it, to follow the, and understand it, to just read the, 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 the course of events very quickly. After this set, we have another event. We have the Amnon and Tamar event. It's, it's a very long story. I'll try to make it short. Amnon, see, David has 18 wives. Not, that's not a lot. <laughs> His son's going to have more. His son Solomon is going to have a thousand. <laughs> so, you know, when you have 18 wives, it means that there's a lot of family politics. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> some of us have a problem just with one. <laughs> 18 wives mean that you have a lot of a lot of your, your kids are like half-brothers and sisters in each other. Amnon has, Avshalom has a full sister called Tamar. Amnon is Avshalom's half-brother, but that means that he's Tamar's half-brother. And he thought, that's far enough. <laughs> and he has this tremendous, tremendous crush on Tamar. So... He somehow he fakes that he's sick. Tamar comes to bake him some cookies. He rapes her. After he rapes her, he sends her out and he says, amnon, and he despises her. He hates her. The passion of his hate after he rapes her is larger than the passion of the love he had for her. Now, the Amnon syndrome, the syndrome that says, you hate your victim, you despise your victim with a passion, is a syndrome I'd like to think about later on. But this is how the story continues after Amnon rapes Tamar and despises Tamar. Avshalom hears about this, and Avshalom is Tamar's full brother, and he wants revenge. King David hears about this also, the Bible tells us. So he knows what, oh, by the way, I forgot to say, it was King David that sent Tamar to Amnon. This is what it says. He let her, he said, why don't you go visit your brother? It was King David that knew that Amnon raped Tamar, and he knew that Avshalom wants to kill Amnon. A while later, there is an event for Avshalom up north in Chazor. He wants all the brothers to come. He's asking that also Amnon will come. King David sends Amnon to Avshalom. Avshalom what does Avshalom do to Amnon up north? Kills him. David hears that his son killed another son of his. He knows the whole thing. Anyway, it's a long stroke. I'll continue telling the story. Avshalom stays up north. He doesn't want to say, see him. Play some politics. Convinces David to let Avshalom come back to Jerusalem. He comes back to Jerusalem. Then he comes down to Jerusalem. He does some very interesting behavior. One of the things he does, he stands right outside the king's palace. And anyone that comes outside of the palace, comes through the palace, he tells him, and people always leave the king's palace when they're upset. Because if you think about it, you always are upset. You leave the palace. Because you go to the palace, you want something from the king. 
And I would say only 5% of the times you get that thing from the king. Right? Now, when you go to, when you want something from somebody, if it's a philanthropist or if it's a boss or if it's anyone that has something that you want, and he says no, he or she say no. So what's the story that we tell ourselves? It's not that we said no because we're not worthy. Why do they say no? Because there's something wrong with that person. That's obviously, that's why. That's why powerful people always, they always, because when you have a budget and you have to give money to different things and you have, and you have a limited amount of jobs, you'll always have people that don't like you. On every yes you say, you say many, many no's. All those people getting a no from the king have a shalom waiting, waiting for them outside the palace. And he said to anyone, if I was king, you'd get what you just asked for. See, this is, what, this is the best thing about being powerless. <laughs> You're so powerful. <laughs> you can give people anything. It's only the people that have that get to say no. People that don't have anything, they get to promise everything. That's why you always get powerful when you're in the opposition. That's why you always, your power always somehow gets swallowed when you are in the cold, when you are in power. Hint. <laughs> it's true. I remember when I was in 96, when there was, uh, in 96, there was elections of Bibi Perez. You remember that? People said, we went to sleep with Paris, we woke up with Bibi. And um, I was in the army, I had a few hours off, I went to, you know my cafe in the Moshevagia Manit? A few hours off, I forgot why, and I walk into that cafe, and then I see Mr. Netanyahu literally kissing babies. Literally, he had a baby. <laughs> so I was like, anyone else was like going to see Mr. Netanyahu. And it was so interesting, because people say to him, eh, Netanyahu, they closed the uh, youth the um, uh, the sneef the um, the branch of the youth movement in our community, and he said, "We'll open many youth movements." <laughs> <laughs> and someone said, "Sagrut Akiva, They closed the Akiva. Akiva. And I was like, "Wow, he's so generous." <laughs> It's so interesting. When you're powerless, you can make infinite. In yeah? By the way, we don't have yet any Akiva. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the oldest trick of being, of the, this is the Avshalom syndrome. And David knows that Avshalom was doing this. What we call in Hebrew, Populariyut Zola. Populariyut Zola, it's, um, Cheap popularity. Well, I don't know, ever since I was in America, I've been watching your TV, and it seems like... <laughs> it seems like you're pretty good at this, too. <laughs> so this is Shalom sitting out, and David knows. So, so what happens if you know, your son outside your kingdom... Oh, and it says, He's stealing the heart of the people. And then, and then King David knows this. And then Absalom asks King David for a favor. He wants to go to Hebron for ritual reasons. And David said, okay, fine, you can go to Hebron. He goes to Hebron. He rallies the crowd. And he attacks Jerusalem. David just hears that his son is coming to attack him. What he does is he leaves his palace and he goes to Jordan. He leaves everything. Oh, I forgot. Another very bizarre piece of his behavior. We're trying to follow here as a pattern. David is behaving in a weird way. He's behaving in a weird way. He's not protecting his power. His political instincts are just not there anymore. But it reaches its peak, its climax. When he leaves his palace, and he leaves in the palace his mistresses. And he says, Lishmor al Almon, to guard. <laughs> The palace. Like I was thinking, who are my best fighters? <laughs> I don't know, maybe he taught them Kung Fu or something. He leaves his mistresses to guard. And then he leaves the door. And then, and then what happened was is that 
Yoav wakes up, he goes, he crushes, he kills his son, and he regains his power. But, but, but I'd like to think, I'd like to offer two readings to what happens here. Reading number one is the enigma of why in Hebron. Reading number two is the enigma, is why is David behaving the way he's behaving? Why did he send Amnon to Tamar? Why did he send Amnon to Absalom? Why did he realize that Absalom is stealing the heart of the people and he's still backing him? Why did he send Absalom to Hebron? Why does he just hear that leaves, he leaves everything and makes a smart decision of <laughs> letting the mistresses guard Jerusalem? Everything is bizarre in the behavior of David. These are two questions, two enigmas that I'd like to think about. Start with the first one. Why Hebron? Turns out that the Bible actually has an answer. In chapter 20, in the end of chapter 19, we have the following after David, or after Yoav crushes the rebellion, Yoav invites all the people of Israel and Yehuda to come and greet the face of the king when he marches back to Jerusalem. There's a competition. Who will greet the face of the king? Yehuda or Israel? And they both meet. They both want to be the people greeting the king after it crushed the rebellion. And there's an interesting argument between them. Yehuda says, we should greet the king. Israel says, we should greet the king. But in the monologue of Yehuda, we could, of the people of Yehuda, we could sense years of no satisfaction. Years, the people that feel like they got the wrong deal. Now, I just want to quote one line of what the people of Yehuda are saying to the people of Israel. You don't have it. It's one line. I'll speak to you. Just follow me. It's like all the people of Yehuda are saying the same thing. Al ish Israel. I'll tell you why we need to bring the king back. Why? What does that mean? He's one of ours. He comes from us. He comes from our tribe. He's us. Why does this trouble you? That he's close to us? Then they say the following line. Which means, did he ever pay us? Did he, did he get extra funding from him all these years? One penny more than what you got? And they have something else. Nesiut means in the Bible. Um, prestigious jobs? Did he give us more funding or jobs all throughout all these years? Can you say one thing that we got from? What they don't say is what the readers know is that right after the Shalom rebellion was crushed, David offered them a few jobs. <laughs> we don't, they don't know this yet. He offered them a few jobs. He offered them a few ministries because he realized why the people of Yehuda rebelled against him? Why were the people of Yehuda? Why did they rebel against him? They rebelled against him. I think this is the paradox of power. The people that bring you to power will be the first people that will rob the power from you. Why is that? Because the people that bring you to power have expectations that you will take care of them. The people of Yudah thought, he's one of ours, he's supposed to take care of us, but David made a decision. What was his decision? He wants to be the king of everyone. But he was the king of all of Israel. He let down his own tribe, his own people, that for years didn't get extra funding, didn't get extra jobs. And as a result, when Avshalom realized this, and they were not happy, and when Avshalom did, he cashed in. Their lack of satisfaction. That's why they were the first ones to tear him down. I think this is a classic syndrome of politics. 
where the people to be, the people that lead you to power many times are the first ones to turn their back on you. No, it's, you know how um, after someone gets to power suddenly, you read a newspaper about all these bad things he did during his campaign? Who's leaking that information? Who's leaking the information? There's a lot once you reach the power. The only way to get power is to make people believe that you can take care of them. The only way to manage power is to take care of everyone, not only the people who bought you to power. And here's the thing. So David loses his base when he gets to power. Now when he crushes Avshalom's rebellion and he offers jobs to Yehuda, who does he lose now? So the next rebellion, rebels against David because he feels like now his policies are, are, are leaning towards his own tribe. Here's the thing. When he wants to be anyone's prime minister, he loses his own tribe. When he wants to take care of his own tribe, what happens? He loses everyone else, which means the real lesson of Samuel 2 is that it's impossible to govern Jews. <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> the political blanket is too short. I don't know if you have this in English. It's a metaphor. When you cover your your head so it's cold in your feet, you cover it's never you can't. If you take care of your base, you lose everyone else, if you take care of everyone else, you lose your base. What? According to this reading, what I call it's the political reading of the fall of David, it was inevitable. That's why people fall. The Bible is an archetype of the paradox of politics. You can't hold on to power because the only way, for all the reasons you reach power, those will be the reasons why you lose power. It's, it's just more expanded. You reach power making promises. You lose power. Why? Because you make promises. And now everybody wants to know. You can't. Everything that gives you power is everything, is all the reasons why you lose power. This is a paradox of politics. There's no way out. The, the Bible is an eternal book touching eternal truths. They're always right, nothing unique. So that's a nice reading. <laughs> There's only one problem with this reading. It has nothing to do with his sin, right? The political reading has nothing to do with his sin. The Bible wants us to lead us to believe that, that he fell, was connected to his behavior. I want to offer a psychological reading for the fall of David. I want to try to think, what is David doing here? What is he doing here? He's sending a known to Tamar. Sending a known to Avshalom. He realizes that Avshalom is doing cheap politics right in front of him. He's sending him to Hebron. He comes to Hebron. He leaves everything. By the way, this is very important. When the prophet Nathan comes and tells him, that he, that he didn't behave, that he sinned. He said that your punishment will be that from within you, somebody will rebel against you, and you will sleep with your mistresses in front of the Enei Hashem beneath this sun. That's what the prophet told David. A few years later, he hears Absalom was coming, he leaves everything, and he keeps the mistresses in the palace. The first thing Absalom does, he comes in and he sleeps, he goes up to the roof. By the way, the roof. The Bible is. It's amazing. Goes up to the roof and he sleeps with David's mistresses. It's almost like David is not waiting for the prophecy of Nathan to fulfill itself. What does he do? He's making it happen, he's initiating it. David is. What is David doing? I think the epitome of David's sin is that he sent in the hands of Uriah the letter of his self-destruction. From that moment on, everything that David is doing is self-destructive. He's sending Avshalom to Amnon and Avshalom to Hebron. He's, he's doing everything to destroy himself. It's almost like, maybe it's exactly like, like he's imitating or he's internalizing the pattern of his own victim. He's becoming his victim. He's being his victim. 
I want to think about, about this for a minute. The Amnon syndrome, the Amnon had a Samuel Lewis describes two stories about people who had victims. How do you say victimized? One story was that Amnon raped Tamar. A second one is that David assassinated Uriah. How did Amnon react to his own crime? He reacted by despising his victim. David reacted with so much guilt, he tried to become his victim by imitating his victim. The Amnon syndrome I can understand. I really can understand. The Amnon syndrome is a syndrome where I think you can understand this. Why do we have a tendency to hate our victims? Why do we have a tendency, to, when we have a victim, to see the worst in him or her? To see the worst. Suddenly you are only aware to their faults, to their problems. We demonize our victims. Why do we demonize our victims? Because if we don't demonize our victims, we can't live with ourselves. The Kotzke has it, says the opposite story. He says, in the Bible, there's an interesting relationship between the word hakrava and the word kirva. In English, we don't have that. Hakrava means to sacrifice. Kirva means to be close. English separates the words. Hebrew unites them. Kirva and hakrava is the same word. The Kotzkan says, only when you lack riv, you are karov. Only when you give something up for someone else, you feel close to someone else. You see, it's counterintuitive. We usually think it this way. If I feel close to someone... I'll give him something, right? But the Kotzker said, this is a Hasidic tradition saying, no, it's the opposite. It's not that because I feel close to someone that I give him something, it's because you give, you start feeling close. When you give, when you sacrifice, Hebrew is so profound in that sense. But it also works the other way around. It's the other way around. Where you say, when you hurt someone, you start hating them. It's not because you hate someone, you hurt him. It's because you hurt him, you start hating him. You see the worst in them. A few years ago, an interesting book by um, this French intellectual, which is very, very smart, even though he's French. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, I'm being, rec- I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, just all the dirty jokes, I already went there. Alan Finkelkamp, Alan Finkelkamp, he writes this book, he tries to understand the irrational relationship between Europe and Israel. And he tries to compare the relationship between America and Israel and Europe and Israel. He says, why is it that anything the IDF does in the Shtachim, and we don't always get it right, we definitely don't always get it right. But there's always different ways to interpret what we do. Why is the Europeans will always choose the worst interpretation, and if that worst interpretation doesn't exist, they'll make it up and believe it. Why is it that in Janine was a massacre, and 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 um cast lead, goldstone? Why is it we always choose the worst interpretation for what we do? Alan Finkelkraut says it has a great reading. And Americans don't. Americans see it differently. So we don't have any history with America. We were never, we were never America's victims. That's why America could just see it for what it is. With Europe, there must be many explanations. There are many explanations for the difference. But there's one interesting one, and extremely insightful. When you're a victim of a continent for so many years, they have to demonize you. They have to see the worst in you. It's not even about the relationship with us. It's about the relationship with themselves, with their own memories. It's so great that America never did anything bad to us. <laughs> There's no baggage there. It's just what it is. There's no psychological need to retroactively justify things that you've done. And Israelis don't get it. They think that if they come to Europeans and they say, after all the bad things you've done to us, we think intuitively that if I expose the fact that I'm your victim, I'll get sympathy. The Amon syndrome says it's the other way around. It's not that if I'm your victim, you like me, it's because I'm your victim that you're programmed to despise me. 
to demonize, see the worst in me, as Rabbi David Hartman said once in the CNN. After the after Chumat Magen, after 2002, when we entered Janin, and we were blamed for a program, which didn't happen. So David Hartman works, walks in Janin with the guy from the CNN, I forgot his name, and he said, why is the whole world blaming, why is Europe blaming you? And David just looked at me and says, because they want to believe that this time we're the Nazis. That's the Finkelkraut intuition. That's the Amnon syndrome. But, but, so we're tempted to believe that you hate someone, so you heard of it because you heard him, you hate him. And since you hate him, you heard of him, and then you're trapped. But then there's David saying that there's an alternative. That you could be not swept into your sin. That it's possible. Not to despise your victim, but your guilt will lead you to have sympathy with your victim. Ultimately become your victim. By the way, personally, I don't think that David's reaction is healthy either. The self-destructive behavior. What I am saying, that saying too, offers us two reactions to our crimes. Two different reactions. And once you have two reactions, that means you have liberty. Once you have two reactions, this means that you are not controlled by events. Once you have two options, and I think what the Bible never shows us is middle ground. God shows us extreme options, never shows us the middle. I think leaving the middle to the readers to think about. The greatness of David is not that he didn't sin. He sinned, but he wasn't locked in his sin. He sinned, but he recognized his sin. He sinned, but he said, Chatati Hashem. He sinned, Chazal say, David Amelech, Mekim Tshuva. He's the inventor of the idea of Tshuva. He never expressed the idea of Tshuva. He was the idea of Tshuva. He accepted the fact and he screwed up. And he couldn't live with himself anymore. That's Tshuva. I offer two readings. Why did David fall? A political reading? Because of the structure of power itself? So like a psychological reading was because he was his own, he defeated himself. I didn't discuss the most obvious reading, which is a true reading, the, th- the theological reading. Why did he fall? Because God made him fall. <laughs> That's why. And it's true. You see, all these readings live in the Bible beside each other. Because the Bible will never answer you a question that you won't ask it. So you come to the Bible with a political question, that's what you'll see. You come with a psychological question, that's what you'll see. If you come with a, with a theological question, that's what you'll see. But the question is, does a theological question, does that neutralize the psychological question or the political question? And by the way, there's probably, there, is, there are so many other readings to what happened here. I think it's very interesting if I want to go back to the fall of David. 1,900 years of Jews being powerless, this chapter, dealing with the challenges of being powerful, this chapter was interesting but uninspiring. It was interesting because you're discussing a time where we had power. It wasn't inspiring because when you're in Galut, you're the victim. This chapter has new life once we have victims. This chapter has no life once we are powerful. And it discusses how do you deal with being powerful. I think this, the, the Bible has a lot in it. One of the things it is, it's therapy for the powerful. That's why the Bible makes much more sense once we have power. That's why the Bible comes back to life after Zionism. It comes back to life after you have power and the challenges of power and how do you deal with power how do you deal with the fact that you might have victims? How do you deal with that? That's the archetype of David. We look at him and we see ourselves dealing every day, every day, with these challenges. And I think that there's no answer to how to deal with these challenges. But I do think that the Bible helps us ask the questions and deal with them.
Thank you, Mincha, and um, I'm going to whisk him away to his plane uh, at Logan Airport, and uh, we just want to thank you. Uh, that, you just saw Rembrandt's plane painting, and it's just <laughs> such a privilege to see that no one in the world does what you do, and when I sold this event to our community, I said, you are the best teacher of human life today, and that's obviously true, and thank you for inviting that. Thank you.